Good evening, family. Aloha. All right. So good to see you, folks. So good to see a lot of people here tonight. I want to wish you a happy Sabbath. I just literally got off the plane and had delayed flights, but I'm so glad the Lord I, uh, got here right on time, it, it seems. And uh, just so glad that you're here. And uh, it's been a while since I've been in Southern California preaching, and uh, we just have a, a few moments together, and so we're just going to jump into the presentation. Tonight is entitled, The Cross and the Ecumenical Apostasy. I hope you brought your Bible. I hope you brought a notebook. I hope you brought a spiritual appetite as we feast upon the bread of life tonight. The Lord Jesus has promised to us that when we are hungry and thirsty for his righteousness, we will be filled. Amen. The Bible says that in God's presence is fullness, not emptiness, but fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And so, looking forward to being filled tonight with his pleasures and with his goodness. And so, we're going we're gonna to pray and jump into the message. I invite you to bow our heads with me as we pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy that is new every morning, your compassions that never fail. We thank you, Lord, that it was your mercy and your love that has drawn us and brought us to this place tonight. And Lord, we have come seeking a blessing from the most holy place. We've come seeking to see you more clearly than ever before. Lord, we thank you that you promised that when we seek with all our hearts, that we will find. And so, Lord, allow us to find that which you want us to understand from your word tonight. And I pray that it would not just be informational, but that it would be transformational. That it would touch to the very depths of who we are and make us different people as a result. Bless us now as we wait upon you. Please, again, fill this room in our hearts with your spirit. Give us attentive minds, sensitive ears, and a soft heart that we might receive the word tonight. Is our prayer. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Our message tonight is entitled, The Cross and the Ecumenical Apostasy. I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Isaiah, we're going to the 58th chapter, where we find a very familiar verse for us as Seventh-day Adventists. A verse that points out both our identity as well as our mission. We're going to Isaiah chapter 58. And when you get there, would you please let me know by saying amen? Amen. Isaiah 58. It's a beautiful chapter. I encourage you to read the whole thing at a later time. But notice with me what the Bible says in verse 12. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 12 it says... And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Here in this very powerful prophetic word, we find both our identity as well as our mission as Seventh-day Adventists. It tells us that we are to raise up a foundation that has been broken, a breach in a wall that has been destroyed. It calls us 
the repairers and the restorers. We are the pathfinders of the last day, the breach builders. And as we think about this verse and the mission that, that God places upon us in this particular passage, this verse is actually an echo of the great work of God's people under the leadership of Nehemiah. We remember the story of how Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. They broke down the walls and destroyed the whole city. And it was under the work of Nehemiah that the walls were built up and the foundation was laid and, 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 the, and the worship of Jehovah, the true God, continue on. The surrounding walls were broken. And as long as there was a breach, there could never be rest for the people of God. Even if most of the wall was up, one little breach would have not brought rest to the people of God. Why? Because they could have easily been infiltrated and attacked by the enemy. And so as we think about that story of the past, in applying it to the context of this verse today, we find that the work that Nehemiah did back then is the same work that we are to do in these last days. Because you see, friends, there's a breach in the wall that needs to be fixed. But first of all, let's ask the question, what does this wall represent? First of all, what is the purpose of a wall? Depends on how you look at it. Many people think that a wall is, is to restrict. But friends, when you think about the wall or a wall, the purpose or the primary purpose of a wall is to protect. Not to restrict, but to protect. And, and, and so this wall that was surrounding the people of God in Jerusalem was there not to restrict the people, to keep them in bondage. No, it was to protect the people. Now, what does this wall represent? Well, friends, what has God given to us that many people look upon as restrictive, but in reality, God has given it to us to protect us? The law of God. Most of the world and even most of the Christian world looks upon those Ten Commandments as restrictive. A bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of rules and regulations. When you study about the true nature of God's law, we discover that His law is a law of love. And it's not given to restrict us, but to protect us from the evil results of sin. And all the terrible suffering that it brings upon the guilty partakers, also the innocent bystanders, because sin infects everything it touches. So God has given us the Ten Commandments, which the Bible tells us is the law of liberty. Tell me, what is another word for liberty? Freedom. There are ten principles of freedom, not to restrict us, but to protect us from sin, to protect us from evil. And so the wall simply represents the law. And so if the wall represents the law, then what is the breach in the law of God today? What is the breach that has been broken down, that has been created in the law? Well, friends, we all understand very clearly that most of the world keeps nine commandments, but there's a breach in that law, and that breach is the fourth. The very commandment that points to the rest that we have in God 
our creator. And that's the reason why the very next verse, Isaiah 58, verse 13, talks about the Sabbath. You see, verse 12 describes the ones that's going to raise up the foundation of many generations, the restorer of the paths to dwell in, and the one that is going to fix the breach in the wall. And then verse 13 tells us what that breach is when it refers to the Sabbath that is being trampled underfoot by God's people. Notice, verse 13, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Verse 14 is the promise. Then shalt thou what? Delight. You see, obedience to God when it's motivated by love is not drudgery, it's a delight. It says, thou shalt delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth. And feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And so we find that the rebuilding of the wall symbolizes the restoration of the truth of God's word, God's law, God's commandments, specifically the Sabbath commandment, the very one that points to the rest that we have in the Lord Jesus. And as I mentioned before, friends, walls offer protection, not so much restriction. The Sabbath is, when we truly understand it, and when we understand what Ellen White says when she said that we need to preach the Sabbath more fully, we will see that it's much more than just pointing out the day on which the Sabbath is, but rather the experience that God wants us to enter to that the day points us to. And that is ceasing from our own works and our own burdens and trying to work our way to heaven and resting in the completed work that God is doing in our lives. And that's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. The Bible says, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know, that we might know that he is the Lord that sanctifies us. The word sanctified meaning to set apart for a holy use. Those who keep the Sabbath are accused as legalists, as, as doing things that are so restrictive. But no, the Sabbath is a sign for us to remember that we can never sanctify ourselves. That only the Lord can sanctify and save us. He's the only one that can make us holy. You see, if we work seven days a week, we, we can't work our way to heaven. So we rest on the seven-day Sabbath as an outward sign of the inward experience, acknowledging to God and to the world, saying that, God, I understand that I can never work my way to heaven. I'm resting in the work that you're doing in my life. Thus, the Sabbath is a sign of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen. It's not restrictive, friends. It's protecting us. From the bondage of salvation by works. Now I can say more about that, but that's not the emphasis of the message tonight. What I wanted to share about this is that, as I mentioned, the purpose of, the, of a wall is not to restrict but to protect. But when you think about a wall, walls not only offer protection, but they also naturally bring division. They naturally what? Bring division. A wall offers protection, but by its very nature, a wall will bring division. We can't avoid it. A wall separates. It brings division. But division is an absolute necessity in order for us to experience heavenly rest. 
And so listen, friends, our mission is not so much to erect a wall of division, but rather to build up the wall of protection. And so the question I want to ask is, how can we fulfill and finish this mission that God has given to us as the last day pathfinders and and wall builders? How can we finish and fulfill this mission? Well, friends, the precedent of the past gives us an example for the present. All we have to do is ask, how did Nehemiah and the people of God do it back then? And here's what the Bible tells us. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. For the people had a what? A mind to work. And so despite the accusations and attacks of the adversaries, God's people prevailed. They prevailed in building up the wall. And friends, this joined wall was the result of a joined and united people that all had a mind to work for God. They were not concerned with their own comforts. They were concerned with building up the wall in order for the people to be protected and the worship of God to go forward unhindered by the attacks of the adversary. And so the people had the same mind, the same vision. They worked together. There was a unity amongst the people of God. And as the work was carried forward, we noticed something interesting. The adversaries changed their strategy of attack. Instead of an outward open controversy, they sought a subtle inward compromise. And I want to share that with you. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Let's go to Nehemiah. We're going to go to the sixth chapter. At first, the enemies of God's people sought an outward open controversy. But then they changed their strategy, suggesting a compromise. We're going to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're laying the foundation for our study tonight. We find in Nehemiah the sixth chapter, there was a a threefold union that came together seeking to halt the work of the rebuilding of the wall. We're in Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. I want you to notice this threefold union that came together, suggesting a compromise to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6, and verse 1, if you're there, would you please say amen? Amen. It says, Now it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian. How many are there? Three. Three of them. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I builded the wall, and that there was no what? Breach left therein. Though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Verse 2, that Sambalat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, and here's the compromise, saying, come, let us, what? Meet together in some one of the villages in the place of plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. So at first, this threefold union tried to, tried to halt the work of God by their threats, by violence and by force. When that did not prevail, now they're inviting Nehemiah to come off the wall. Come, let's meet together. They're offering a subtle compromise. They resorted to flattery, a peaceful compromise. And friends, their goal was, was simply to get Nehemiah off the wall so that the work could cease, Nehemiah could discern the mischief of their intentions. 
And so his response in verse 3 is powerful. And I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a, what kind of work? A great work. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. And so we find Nehemiah, this simple cupbearer, who left the palace of the king and went to work leading the people of God. Nehemiah would not be called down by their offer of compromise. He allowed nothing to distract him from his duty and nothing to pull him away from his post. He remained on the wall because that work that he was doing, which was a great work, was more important than compromising with the enemy. And friends, as we think about this story back then, I want to share with you that today there are multitudes of forces, both seen and unseen, seeking ways to get God's people off of the wall of their mission. Coalitions are uniting to call us down into compromise so that the walls of truth can be demolished by a counterfeit gospel in the world today. And friends, we're living in a time when there is an all-out attack, all-out attack to break down the walls of truth. And in this crisis hour, my exhortation to you, my brothers and sisters, is don't fall off the wall. We must remain. Don't allow the enemy to cause you to fall off the wall. Now let's fast forward to about 500 years later, where we find a similar situation repeated in the life of Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bible now to the book of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. Fast forward about 500 years later. We find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That word Gethsemane meaning oil press. In this Garden of the Oil Press, the unity of the people of God was pressing upon the mind of Christ. He knows, friends, that the only way that the wall of truth would be restored is if his disciples are united together, having one mind to work. You see, when Jesus came that first time, He essentially came to rebuild the broken walls of humanity. And the way in which he was able to rebuild our brokenness was the fact that he himself was broken for us on that cruel cross. Just before he lays down his life, he picks up his people in prayer, praying to the Father for the unity and the oneness of his church. Notice he's not so much praying for himself. But he's praying for the broken walls to be restored. Notice what he says in John 17, beginning with verse 20. You can read the whole thing when you get home. But Jesus here says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. You know who that is? That's us. We who believe in Jesus because of the words of those early apostles. He's praying for us. And what is the desire of Christ for his people? As he's heading to the cross, one of his last prayers, what is on his heart? What does he desire for us? Verse 21, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. For what reason? 
that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In other words, Christ is making plain here that the oneness of his people will be evidence to the world that he is truly the sent of God. And so he's praying for the unity and the oneness of his church. And it's the type of unity that he has with the Father that he desires for his people. Verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And so in that dark and discouraging hour, unity was his request. And friends, when we pray, God answers our prayers. When he prays, we need to be the answer to his prayer. You see, this is a prayer that, that we can answer. We can answer the prayer of God, friends. When we allow the Holy Spirit to bring us together in one, in that upper room experience, and we'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. You see, in this supernatural warfare, we can't afford to think as individuals. Like they say, united we stand, but divided we fall. If we're divided, we're going to fall off the wall. You see, it was the uniting of the people of God under Nehemiah that caused them to finish the work of building that wall in 52 days. They had one mind, they had a focus, they had a vision. They were not concerned with their own comforts. But the glory of God and the honor of Christ was their motivation that caused them to work together as one. You see, friends, there are strength in numbers. We need one another. The Bible says no man lives unto himself. Even if you are living for yourself, you're not really living for yourself. Because our influence touches all those around us, whether it be good influence or bad. You see, the only way the wall is going to be built up is if we all work with the same mind together. Can you say amen? amen? Too much division in our world. Too much division in our church. We need to come together. But the question is, what is the glue that binds us together? What, is the, what glues us together as one so that we can move forward and actually finish the work of Christ? Verse 22 of John 17. Here's the glue, friends. And the what? Glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. So notice, whose glory is this? It's the glory that the Father gave to Christ that he gives to us. So it says, the glory that you gave me, I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so, what is the glue that binds us together as one? It is none other than the glory of God. The glory is the glue, friends. But the question is, what is the glory of God? You see, the glory of God is not some untangible, obscure thing that we can't really wrap our minds around. Friends, the Bible makes it plain exactly what this glory of God is that brings us together as one. And I'm sure you're all familiar with this, but we understand that when Moses asked the Lord, Lord, show me your glory, what did God show him in Exodus 33? He showed him his character. So the glory of God is simply the character of God. You see, it's the character of the Lord that brings us together as one. That's the glue, friends. The glory or the character of God. But let's go a little bit deeper tonight and ask the question, what is character made up of? Two things. How many? Somebody know the answer? Thoughts and feelings. Not just thoughts, not just feelings. But these two together make up the moral character of an individual. That's what we've been told in the book, Messages to Young People. 
page 92, amongst other places in the Spirit of Prophecy, if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. And the thoughts and feelings, what? Combined, make up the moral character. I like what C.D. Brooks says, my favorite preacher. He says, it's a matter of integration. Thoughts and feelings integrated, combined together, make up the character of an individual, but also the character of God. And so listen, friends, unity is, is based upon the glory of God, which is basically the thoughts and the feelings of God combined. And so it looks like this. Character is made up of two things, thoughts and feelings. The thoughts of God are revealed in truth. The thoughts of God are truth. The feelings of God, spirit. These two things, friends, spirit and truth is what separates a true worshiper from a vain or a false worshiper. A true worshiper of God will not only worship according to truth, not only according to spirit, but truth and spirit combined is the glory of God. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, where does this glory come from? In other words, where do we find the thoughts and the feelings of God exposed to us? It's found in the word of God. And that's why in verse 17, Jesus tells us where it comes from. Verse 17 of John 17, sanctify them through thy what? Truth and what is truth? Thy word is true. So the word sanctify, the same thing that God did with the Sabbath and setting it apart, sanctifying it for a holy use. He wants to do that in our experience. He wants to sanctify us, to set us apart for holiness. And how does he do it? By his word of truth. Because friends, what are words in reality? When you speak, what are you expressing? You're basically expressing your thoughts and your feelings. Words are thoughts and feelings made audible. That's what words are, friends. It's basically thoughts and feelings which make up your character audible. So Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. The heart is known by the words that are spoken because what we say is an expression of our thoughts and our feelings. And that's why it also says in the book of Proverbs, out of the heart are the issues of life. Your life. And every issue of your life comes from the heart. It's made known by the words, which are the expression of your thoughts and feelings. Therefore, friends, listen carefully. If unity is based upon the glory of God, and the glory of God is simply the character of God, and the character of God is simply the thoughts and feelings of God, and the thoughts and feelings of God are made known by the Word of God, that shows us very clearly that in order to get unity, it must be based upon the Word of God. It must be based upon the biblical Christ. The what kind of Christ? Because any Christ that is not a biblical Christ is not a real Christ. It is an antichrist. And friends, I want to submit to you that it is this antichrist that almost the entire Christian world in this ecumenical apostasy is uniting under. Saying, let's come together in spirit. Oh, but it doesn't matter what the truth says. But friends, true unity can never be founded apart from the biblical picture 
of Christ. The Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact expression of the Father's heart. That's why he's called the living word. He is the word made flesh. And, And the Bible is the written word, which is a reflection of the living word. And so, the basis of our unity must be the biblical Christ. Otherwise, our unity just might be founded upon an antichrist. And the word antichrist simply means one that puts themselves instead of or in the place of Christ. And friends, we're going to see tonight that that is exactly what is taking place in the Christian world today. For every truth, there's a counterfeit. And it's interesting that in John 17, as Jesus is praying for a true unity amongst his people, A unity based upon the word of truth, which are the thoughts and feelings of God made audible. The true glory of God as Jesus is praying and pleading for this unity among his people. At that same time, there was a counterfeit unity taking place behind the scenes. A threefold coalition was uniting. Plotting together to crucify Christ. You realize that there was three powers that joined together in order to get Jesus crucified? Three powers. The Romans, the Pharisees, and the false disciple, Judas Iscariot. It's a threefold union. The Romans were pagans. The Pharisees, they were a corrupt priesthood. And then you have Judas, one of the 12, that led them to the place where Jesus was. He is an apostate disciple. So took the unity of the pagan Romans, the corrupt priesthood of the Pharisees, and this apostate disciple Judas, this unity is what led to the crucifixion of Christ, the sacrificing of the Messiah. And friends, history is being repeated even today. Jesus, who is the word of truth, is still being crucified today in the name of a counterfeit unity that tragically is taking place amongst those who profess to believe in him. I want you to notice as we switch gears, we're going to tie all of this together at the end, but notice as we shift gears a little bit, how the prophetic pen describes this final counterfeit coalition in the last days. We studied this before. I'm sure you studied this before, or I'm assuming that you have. I don't have the time to dissect it in detail, but let me give you the highlights. Revelation 16, 13, and 14 describes Satan's move to unite the world together in order to crucify Jesus, his people, and the truth of his word in the last days. And it describes a unity of of three parties coming together. Revelation 16, 13, and 14. Please write it down. And notice what it says. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of where? The mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So you see the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. This is the unholy trinity of Revelation. Three unclean frogs coming out of their mouths. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Now notice, 
this threefold union comes together, then notice what they do. Which go forth unto the what? Kings of the earth. Now, kings, are those religious or political powers? Those are political powers. So notice the progression of unity. The dragon, beast, false prophet come together first. They unify. And by the way, do you know what they all have in common? What do the beast, dragon, and false prophet all have in common in the verse? The same thing is coming out of their mouth. What comes out of your mouth? Words, which is an expression of your thoughts and feelings, which is a revelation of your character. In other words, they have the same mind, the same character. They're teaching and saying the same thing. That's what they have in common. We're going to find out what that is in a moment. So these three come together in unity. And then after that, they go to the political powers of the earth because they need military muscle in order to force their agenda on the consciences of individuals. And once they have that political backing, then they go to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so we find Satan's final counterfeit unity in the last days, sweeping across the churches. It's the, it's the same unity that tried to get Nehemiah off the wall, the same unity that, that ended up crucifying Jesus Christ. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And let me go through this very quickly. I don't have the time to prove it all. If you see our evangelistic seminar on uh, 3ABN, it's played uh, there. You can, you can see it. But notice, the Romans, in prophecy, are symbolized by the dragon. Because it was the dragon that tried to devour the baby Jesus as soon as Jesus was born. You remember that? In Revelation 12. And who's the dragon? It's Satan, of course. But who did Satan use to try to kill baby Jesus? The pagan Roman Empire. And so the dragon, which is a symbol of the Romans, pagan Romans, it really is a symbol of spiritualism or paganism in the last days. The teachings of spiritualism and paganism, that's, that's what the dragon represents. Now, how do we know that? Because that dragon is also called the serpent of old. He's called the what? That's Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. He is that old serpent. It's a reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And friends, what did that serpent of old speak? He spoke the words, You shall not surely die, but your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be like God. And friends, the, that's what the New Age teaches. That when you die, you don't really die. God is in you. You are the Christ consciousness. And so you need to find salvation within, they say. But friends, the new age is really the old lie of the serpent. And so the dragon, friends, listen, the dragon is the embodiment of every pagan religion and spiritualism that is repeating the words of the serpent of old. That's what the dragon represents, paganism and spiritualism. And so we find that the dragon unites with the beast. Now, friends, the beast is a corrupt priesthood. Just like the scribes and Pharisees, they were a corrupted priesthood. So too the beast is a corrupted priesthood in the last days. It's simply Catholicism, a corrupted priesthood. Now, we don't have the time to prove that. I'm assuming that you're familiar with the study of prophecy. And so we're not going to deal with that right now. But the beast represents Catholicism. And so the dragon, which is the embodiment of spiritualism and paganism, 
unites with the beast, which is Catholicism. And by the way, it's interesting that it says that the dragon gave to the beast his power, seat, and authority. In other words, the dragon, which is spiritualism, is what breathed his life into the papacy. Because the papacy teaches what the dragon teaches. Spiritualism in a Christian garment. And so these two powers come together. And by the way, the beast is always loyal to the dragon. Because that's who he got his life and power from. Pagan Rome transferred their power to papal Rome. Not just their political power, but also their teachings. The teachings of spiritualism, paganism, was transferred right into papal Rome. It's basically paganism with a Christian garment. That's the beast. And just like the Pharisees thirsted for the life of Christ and just wanted to kill him like a wild beast. And so that's what it represents. And so these two powers come together with the false prophet embodied as Judas Iscariot. The false prophet. One that looks like a disciple. One that looks like a spokesperson for God, but does not speak the things of God. It speaks falsely, outwardly looking, having a form of godliness, but inside denying the power thereof. And so in prophecy, the false prophet is simply apostate Protestantism especially in America, apostate Protestantism. And so we find that this is the final unity of the last days. Spiritualism, Catholicism, and apostate Protestantism are going to unite together first, then they're going to go to the political powers of the world, and then the whole world, and the inevitable result of this false unity is to attack and try to destroy the truth of God and the people of God who propagate that truth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, friends, listen carefully. Don't misunderstand. The beast, dragon, and false prophet, we're not saying that these men as individuals are they, but rather what these men represent, because we don't stand in judgment upon anyone's personal, individual relationship with God. Amen? Only God knows the heart. Amen? And so we can't know what is going on in someone's heart. Only God does. So he is the ultimate judge. So we don't stand or, and we should never stand in judgment upon anyone's personal relationship with God. We put these pictures up here uh, simply to show what these individuals represent. That's who the beast, dragon, and false prophet is. It's more of the institution and, and, and the teachings behind it. God would judge individuals and we should not. Amen? Amen. And so we can't know the heart. But Jesus did say, you shall know them by their fruits. Not the root. But the fruits, and the root, the fruit we can examine, that's what we're doing tonight. And so, friends, let me ask you the question. Has there been a growing unity amongst these three powers in the world today? Have they been coming together more closely united than ever before? Absolutely, yes. In 1999, the Lutheran and the Catholic Church signed an agreement that the protest was over. Basically calling the Protestant Reformation a big misunderstanding. That happened in 1999. Now they claim to believe and teach the same gospel. And I believe that if Martin Luther was alive today, he would protest that. Because it's not the same gospel. And then in 2004, the Worldwide Methodist Church signed that same agreement, saying that the Reformation was just a big misunderstanding. We now teach and preach the same gospel. Then many of you saw the video. Last February 2014, 
the evangelical Episcopal Bishop Tony Palmer, who was basically a charismatic Catholic, spoke at the Charismatic Evangelical Leadership Conference hosted by Kenneth Copeland, addressing over 3,000 evangelical leaders calling for an end to Protestantism, saying later on that we live in a post-Protestant era and that to protest is spiritual racism. Basically saying that if you stand for truth, you are a racist. And that's a strong word, friends. I want you to notice what he said. You saw the video. We don't have the time to show it, so I'm just going to read some of the highlights of what he said. Bishop Tony Palmer, speaking to over 3,000 evangelical leaders, calling for an end to the Protestant Reformation or, or, or the protest. He said, I believe that God has brought me here to this year's minister's conference in the spirit of who? Elijah. Now I've understood that the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of reconciliation to return hearts to each other. It is the glory that glues us together, not the doctrines. If you accept that Christ is living in me, and notice what he says, and the what? Presence. I wonder what presence that is. And the presence of God is in me and the presence of God is in you. That's all we need because God will sort out all our doctrines when we get upstairs. In 1999, he said, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Lutheran Church signed an agreement and, and brought an end to the protest. Brothers and sisters, he appeals, Luther's protest is over, is yours. The protest has been over for 15 years. If there is no more protest, then how can there be a Protestant church? Maybe we're all Catholics again, he said. We need to throw as much resources into the ministry of reconciliation as we do in the ministry of evangelization. Or are we interesting? What? Building walls without foundations. And so he spoke these words, saying that the protest is over. And if it's over, no such thing. It's illogical to have a Protestant church. And if there's no Protestant church, we're all Catholics once again. So we find that there's a unity that is growing. A after he spoke these words, he then played a direct message from the pontiff calling for unity. And Pope Francis said these words, and I quote, We are kind of, permit me to say, separated. Separated because it's sin that has separated us. All our sins. And he says the misunderstandings throughout history. I am nostalgic, yearning that this separation comes to an end and gives us communion. And let us pray to the Lord that he unites us all. Come on, we're, we are brothers. Let's give each other a spiritual hug and let God complete the work which he has begun. And this is a miracle. The miracle of unity has begun and he will complete this miracle of unity. And so again, an ecumenical movement, a, a uniting of the churches together. And after that video clip was played, you remember the response of the evangelical church there. They, they all gave a standing ovation, began to pray, speaking in tongues. A type of presence came upon them, which they sincerely believe is the glory that unites them together. This charismatic experience that is not rooted and founded upon the word of truth. And so, after that, as a result of that call, 
that took place in early of 2014. As a result of that call and that experience at this particular conference, in June of 2014, Palmer brought a group of highly influential evangelical leaders who jointly reach over 700 million evangelicals. He brought them there to the Vatican City to meet with the Pope to discuss the visible unity with the Bishop of Rome. And here's a picture that they took together. And then uh, uh, Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance, Dr. Jeff uh, Tunicliffe, he said these words, I think Pope Francis, reaching out to evangelicals, bodes well for future conversation because that will allow us to go deeper in our interactions together. And so, as a result of the Pope making an apology concerning the persecutions of the past, this individual, uh, the Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance, was compelled to give the same apology to the pontiff. A unity is taking place, the same unity that prophecy has predicted. And then just this past Sunday, or so five, six days ago, January 25th, 2015, an ecumenical prayer service right there in the Vatican. It was held at St. Paul's Basilica. I was there a few years ago, a very beautiful building. And there's an annual week of prayer for Christian unity that is taking place every year there since 1968. And, and, and this last one, this past week, was attended by representatives from many different Christian churches and denominations. And it was in this meeting that the Pope called for the members of all denominations to pursue unity amongst themselves. And I want you to notice what he said in his homily. Pope Francis said just this past Sunday... So many past controversies between Christians can be overcome when we put aside all, how do you say this word? Excuse me, I grew up in Hawaii, so English is my second language. <laughs> Broken English is my first language, and so some of these words I'm still, I'm still working on. And apologetic approaches, we, he said we need to put aside these things and seek instead to grasp more fully what unites us. Christian unity, we are convinced would not be the fruit of subtle theoretical discussions in which, in which each party tries to convince the other of the soundness of their opinions. In the call to be evangelizers, all the churches and ecclesial communities discover a privileged setting for closer cooperation. For this to be effective, we need to stop being self-enclosed, exclusive, and bent on imposing a uniformity based on merely human calculations. Our shared commitment to proclaiming the gospel enables us to overcome proselytism and competition in all their forms. All of us are at the service of the one gospel. And friends, when you listen to those words, that sounds very nice. It sounds good. But here's the problem. Jesus said something very different than that. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am not come to send peace, but a sword. Christ did not primarily come to bring a sense of peace and harmony and unity amongst all the, the people of the human race. He came to bring a sword, friends. And what is that sword? It is the word of God. And the nature of the sword of God's word, just like the law the wall of God's law is that it brings separation. It brings division. A sword, friends. The truth of God's word separates us from the world. Why? Because it's just like a, a surgeon 
who has to make an incision, not to harm but to heal, to cut away the cancerous tumor out of that person's body. That's how God uses the sword of his word. Therefore, the sword of the word is important. Naturally, it brings division. That's why Jesus said, I'm not come primarily to bring peace, but the sword. And friends, when we yield to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we will have peace knowing that the cancer of deception has been cut away. Can you say amen? But there can never be no peace, true peace, without being cut by the sword of the Lord. The Bible says in James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above, the true heavenly wisdom, the truth of God, is first what? Pure, then what? You see, the truth, the wisdom of God is pure before it's peaceable. God is more concerned with purity more than just a superficial peace and harmony amongst the human race. It's pure first, then peaceable, gentle, and easily to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then we find in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? A curse. And those are strong words, my brothers and sisters. Bible says that if someone comes preaching a different gospel, even if an angel from heaven comes claiming to, to preach the true gospel, but it's different from what God has revealed in his word from the, through the previous prophets, let that angel be accursed. It's not of God, friends. And so, we all know the verse, Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so we find, friends, that the churches of the world are not preaching the same gospel of Christ. They're not preaching the everlasting gospel. It is a new theology, a new type of gospel that, 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 that separates Christ from his own words. And when you separate Christ from his words, you have an antichrist. You have a false Christ. But she is gaining the support and influence of all the churches of the world. All over the world, Protestants, as well as atheists and even uh, leaders of other religions alike are beginning to wander after the beast. It seems like, the, and many people say today, but it seems like things have changed. It seems like the Catholic Church of yesterday is no longer the Catholic Church of today. But friends, has there really been a change in the nature of the beast? There has been a change, but not in the beast. Notice where the change has been made. And it's interesting that this book written over 100 years ago speaks so relevantly to what we're seeing in our world today. It says in the book, Great Controversy, page 571, the Roman church now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today, the doctrines devised in the darkest ages are still held. Let none deceive themselves. The papacy that notice that what? Protestants are now so ready to honor is the same that ruled the world in the days of the Reformation when men of God stood up at the peril of their lives to expose her iniquity. Now, friends, these words were written before the Protestant world was even thinking about embracing the papacy. And the prophet was, was right. 
What we're seeing happening today was written long ago. The papacy that Protestants are so willing to embrace is the same one. And then it says, she possesses the same pride and arrogant assumption that lorded it over kings and princes and claimed the prerogatives of God. Her spirit is no less cruel and despotic now than when she crushed out human liberty and slew the saints of the Most High. It is Protestantism that has changed, not the papacy. The papacy is tolerant where she is powerless. But give her back the sword that she used when she reigned, and we will see the dark ages repeated before our very eyes, and that's what prophecy predicts will happen. We're seeing it being fulfilled today, and let me be quick to to remind us, friends, that this should not cause us to be afraid, but to be excited that the Lord Jesus is going to come again. And to realize that all we need to do is learn to love Jesus. Because the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Oh friends, don't be afraid of the beast as long as you are connected with the Lamb. And here's another thing. Don't focus so much on the beast to the point that you lose sight of the Lamb. Oh, many of us, we know who the Antichrist is. But the question is, do you know Jesus Christ? That's the bottom line, amen? But nonetheless, God has revealed these things to us in His Word so that we can be ready, amen? Not just so that we can be ready, but to give us evidence that he is the God that knows the future before it even happens, thus revealing to us that he is a God that we can trust, amen? That's the primary purpose of prophecy, friends. God is not simply wanting to inform the intellect and satisfy our curiosity, but he's given us evidence that he is a God that can be trusted, a God that can be served, and a God that can be loved. And so... We might be tempted to feel afraid that as we see these things taking place and as we, we hear the reality that the dark ages will be repeated and that persecution are gonna, is going to be rekindled. But fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen? And so we need to make sure that we put prophecy in the context of Christ. Amen? That is so important. So important. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But friends, notice. She is tolerant where she's powerless. But give her the sword, give her political power, you're going to see her true nature come out. And unfortunately, friends, evangelicals today are totally ignorant of their history at best and grossly deceived at worst. And as a result, many are coming down off the walls of truth and to the compromise of the enemy. But in this crisis hour, Don't fall off the wall, friends. We must remain upon the wall. So notice again, there's a progression of unity. The dragon, beast, false prophet come together. We saw how that is taking place, and there's lots more we can say about that. They're already united, friends. Spiritualism, uh, Catholicism, and apostate Protestantism, this unholy union is together. And now they're going to the kings of the earth, civil powers. And after that, They will go to the whole world. But then notice, what is the inevitable result of this counterfeit ecumenical apostasy? The inevitable result, Revelation 17, verse 13 and 14. These have what? One mind. Just like Nehemiah and his boys had one mind to finish the work, these have one mind to destroy it. One mind and shall give their power and strength to who? Who's their leader? They're going to look to the beast as the leader. The dragon and the false prophet will look to the beast as the leader. They're going to give their strength and power to the beast. And these shall make war with the lamb. 
How can a lamb stand up to a beast, a dragon, and a false prophet? That lamb that is just a meek, humble creature, it seems like an unfair match, doesn't it? How in the world can this lamb stand up to a beast and a dragon and a false prophet? But the good news, friends, is that the lamb has the power to slay dragons. Amen? Amen. This lamb is going to come out on top. But nonetheless, they're going to unite. They're going to make war with the lamb. And friends, what is it going to look like specifically? What is the basis of this unity? In the book Great Controversy, page 588, it says, Through the two great errors, what are they? The immortality of the soul, that's the teaching of the dragon, spiritualism, and Sunday sacredness. Through these two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former, that spiritualism, the immortality of the soul, while the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter, that Sunday sacredness, creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. You see, the Protestants have no problem because they keep the same day as Rome. They have that bond of sympathy. And then it says, the Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this what? Threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling upon the rights of conscience. That, friends, is the national Sunday law. Protestants uniting with spiritualism. That's what the emergent church is all about, this charismatic movement that, that, that de-emphasizes doctrine and exalts personal experience above the teachings of God. It's a movement where the word of God is no longer the final authority, but rather what you think and what you feel and your own charismatic inward experience with this presence, they say. And friends, this prepares them to connect back with Rome, with the beast, upon those points that they have in common. That's what Tony Palmer said. Isn't that right? He said, if you believe that the presence of God is in me, and I believe the presence of God is in you, that's all we need, and we can come together. Spiritualism. And as a result of that union, it would trample upon the rights of conscience. That's the national Sunday law. Freedish, uh, religious freedom will be stripped and demonic doctrines imposed upon the mind. And then it says, notice, as spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, it has greater power to deceive and ensnare. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and many, what is this word right here? Undeniable wonders will be performed. You see, friends, if we don't have a correct understanding about what happens when a person dies, that paves the way for demons in disguise to come and deceive. And so that's what's going to happen. Many undeniable wonders, false miracles, and the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church. You see, we're going to see apparitions of the Virgin Mary increase more and more. Perhaps demon posing as Tony Palmer will come, adding impetus to this movement. That's the reason why, friends, we can't trust our senses. We can't go by how we feel or what we think. We must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Because the devil will come and dazzle your senses and lead you astray. We must trust in 
the word of the Lord Jesus. And just because something is done in the name of Jesus does not mean it is of Jesus, friends. It must be according to the word of Jesus. Amen? And then it says, notice, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of spiritualism. Papists who boast of miracles as a certain sign of the true church will be readily deceived by this wonder-working power. And Protestants, having cast away the shield of truth, will also be deluded. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power. And they will see in this what? Union a grand what? Movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. Friends, we have been told exactly what's going to take place. And we're seeing it taking place right before our very eyes. And so my question, as we bring out a few last points, should we be a part of this? Shall we come down from the wall to join? My friends, don't fall off the wall. Now's the time to stand firm and continue like Nehemiah, building up the walls of truth so that the people of God can experience the heavenly rest. What did the founders of the Protestant churches do? I want to read you now. Page 46 of the book, Great Controversy. Friends, this book, I believe, soon is going to be illegal for what it says. So right now, while we have it, we need to dust it off and read it and share it with the world. Amen? Amen. In the time of peace, because when the trouble comes, it's going to be difficult. Great Controversy 46 says, after a long and severe conflict, the faithful few decided to dissolve all union with the apostate church if she still refused to free herself from falsehood and idolatry. They saw that separation was an absolute necessity if they would obey the word of God. Many people say, oh, separation, that's not, not, a, not a good thing. But listen, friends, the nature of a wall is that it not only offers protection, but it naturally brings separation. You can't get your way around it. And so what do they want to do? Get rid of the wall. Forget the wall. Let's just come together. The early Protestant reformers, they saw that separation was an absolute necessity. They could not obey God and man at the same time when they contradicted each other. They dared not tolerate errors fatal to their own souls. To secure peace and unity, they were ready to make any concession, any concession consistent with fidelity to God, but they felt that even peace would be too dearly purchased at the sacrifice of principle. If unity could be secured only by the compromise of truth and righteousness, then let there be difference and even what? War. Let there be difference and even war. Peace, friends, is not worth the sacrifice of principle. If you try to sacrifice the principle and truth for the sake of peace in your marriage and your home, you will not have true peace. It's a superficial counterfeit peace. And I'd rather be at peace with God and rejected by the world than be at peace with the world and rejected by God, friends. And so then it makes the personal application. It says, well, would it be for the church and the world if the principles that actuated those steadfast souls, the reformers, were what? Revived in the hearts of God's professed people, there is an alarming indifference in regard to the what? 
doctrines which are the pillars of the Christian faith. People even in our church are saying, it's not about doctrine. There's a de-emphasis of doctrine. But here's the thing, friends. Jesus is the word that was made flesh. And friends, what is doctrine? It's simply teaching. Jesus is the embodiment of the doctrine. Everything he said, everything he lived. So to say you don't want doctrine is really to say you don't want Christ. You can't separate Jesus from his own words. More on that tomorrow. There's an alarming indifference in regard to the doctrines which are the pillars of the Christian faith. The opinion is gaining ground that after all, these are not of vital importance. This degeneracy, it's called, is strengthening the hands of the agents of Satan so that false theories and fatal delusions, which the faithful in ages past imperiled their lives to resist and expose, are now regarded with favor by thousands who claim to be followers of Christ. And that is a tragedy. The evangelical and Protestant world have lost their identity and thus have let go of their mission. And friends, let me say this. What a stinging insult it is to the sacrifice and blood of the founding fathers of faith of these churches. To embrace these errors that their founding fathers gave their lives to resist and expose. What a stinging insult to the blood that was shed by martyrs of the past. And let me say, friends, the Adventist church is not immune to these delusions. There's a lot of one-sided projects and one-sided preaching that is creeping within the church today. God never calls us to compromise truth for the sake of peace. And in this crisis hour, we must remain unmovable upon the wall. Oh, friends, don't fall off the wall. What's happening today is a repeat of what took place during the days of Nehemiah as well as the time of Christ. This threefold union like Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem during the days of Nehemiah. And the threefold union during the time of Christ with, the, with Judas and the Pharisees and the Romans are calling the end time Nehemiahs to get off the wall and come down and compromise. This unholy alliance is saying to us, get off of your Sabbath truth. It's not that important. Join us. They say that the wall is just so decisive. It's spiritual racism. Let's tear down this wall. But friends, listen, as long as there is a breach, the enemy will be able to come in and destroy as long as there's a breach, there can be no true rest and true peace amongst the people of God. And so as we close with our final and most important point, point number three, what enables us to remain unmovable upon the wall? How many of you want to say, Lord, I want to remain on the wall to continue that work? And so now the question, which is really the most important point of this whole presentation, what enables us? to remain unmovable on the wall like Nehemiah? Well, the answer is found as we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prayed for the oneness and the unity, the true unity of his people. Let's go back there and hear the words of Christ. In John 17, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, I have, what? Glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. You see, just like Nehemiah, Jesus was going to finish the work. He was not going to come off the wall and compromise with the enemy. He said, I'm going to finish the work. 
and I'm going to glorify thee on the earth. And then it says, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Friends, I want you to notice, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's praying that the Father would glorify him. Listen, friends, here is the glory of the cross. Christ seeks for strength to reveal the glory of the Father on Calvary's cross. Remember, friends, what is glory? Character. What is character made up of? Thoughts and feelings. And so Jesus is wanting to make known how God thinks, what God thinks about us, and how how God feels about us. And he's going to demonstrate the thoughts and feelings of God at the cross. This is the glory of the cross. In this crisis hour, friends, Jesus was faced with a similar temptation like that of Nehemiah. Satan was there in Gethsemane tempting Christ. Oh, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to waste your love on the human race. Come and and go back to heaven. You don't have to die. He was tempted to come off the wall, so to speak. But Jesus' response at Gethsemane and Calvary demonstrates what we need to do when the whole world seems to be against us like it was against Christ in that crisis hour. What is the glory of the cross? I want you to notice what happened. Oh, this is so beautiful. Notice the temptation that Christ met at the cross. Matthew 27, 39 through 42. Those who passed by, blasting him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, what? Come down from the cross. On the cross, Jesus was building the wall, friends. Upholding the principles of God's law, even to the very end. The devil was tempting, come off the cross. Come off that wall. If you are the son of God, he was tempted to distrust or to forget his identity as the son of God and thus abort his mission. Don't forget that, friends. When we forget our identity, it leads to aborting our mission. He was tempted to forget who he was. If you are the son of God, attacking his identity, come down and unify us in this unholy union because if you come down, we're going to believe you and we're going to follow you. So why don't you come down and let's unite. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. And we will believe him. Get off the wall. Unite with us. You come down, we'll believe. We'll support. And then, after attacking his identity, now they turn to attack his relationship with God himself. The third time, they said, he trusted in God. Let him, that's God, deliver him, Christ, now. If he will have him, if God will have Christ, for he said, I am the son of God. Notice the temptation. They are attacking his relationship with God. Basically, they're saying, if God really wants you, let him deliver you right now. And the fact that he's not delivering you shows that not even God wants you. We don't want you. We will not have this man to rule over us. But not only do we not want you, but not even God wants you. Look at you, you're hanging on a tree. And friends, the Old Testament tells us that the one who hangs on the tree is cursed by God. 
Christ was taking our curse so that we might have his blessing. And so they're attacking him on this point that God is forsaking you. Not even God wants you. Oh, what a difficult temptation. And friends, you know how Christ felt. He felt in his humanity that that was true. But here's the good news. When they said these words, Jesus recognized that they were actually fulfilling prophecy by speaking those words. He understood because of his intimacy with the scriptures that when they said these words, they were actually quoting from Psalms 22 and verse 8. So what enabled him to get through his crisis is because he saw that, that what was happening was indeed a fulfillment of prophecy. And so as they quoted verse 8, Jesus responds by quoting verse 1. Because the first verse of Psalms 22 says this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And friends, you have to understand the significance of those words. He was being tempted to believe that God was forsaking him. And he felt it in his own flesh. He felt like this was true. And thus he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the thing that enabled Christ to get through that conflict was his faith in the word of God. In that trying hour, he quoted the scriptures, friends. My God. My God. In other words, what Christ was saying was this. Even though it seems like, God, you're giving up on me. I'm not going to give up on you. You are still my God. He didn't just say, God, God, why? He said he claimed God as his own. It, it seemed like the father was forsaking him. And God, even though you will forsake me, I will not forsake you. You were still my God in this dark and difficult situation. You are my God. Even though I don't feel like you love me or feel like you care about me, you are still my God. And so I'm not going to consult with my own feelings and emotions and circumstances in this situation. But I will have faith in the promise of your word that you are who you say you are. And so even though it seems like you're forsaking me, you are still mine. This, my friends, is the faith of Jesus. What do we need to make it through the last days? The faith of Jesus. The faith that says during the time of Jacob's trouble where it seems like not even God is for us. That we will believe anyway. We will still say, my God, my God. Friends, Jesus' response was similar to that in Nehemiah. He was being tempted to come down. And essentially, he was saying, I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work on this cross. I'm redeeming humanity. And I'm revealing the heart, the thoughts and feelings of my father. You see, friends, on the cross, that's what Jesus thought about his father. You are my God. Now, how did he feel? That's what he thought about his, his father. How did he feel about his tempters and his persecutors? This is how he felt. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He prayed for the apostates. And he loved his persecutors to death. He sighed and cried for the abominations that were taking place in his name. You see, friends, when you look at the cross, you see the two most powerful forces in the universe clashing together. You see the power of sin and the power of love simultaneously 
They clash at the cross. But the beauty of the cross, it shows that the power of love is stronger than the power of sin. It is stronger than the power of death. Christ claiming God as his own, even though it seemed like God was forsaking him. And Christ loving his murderers and praying and interceding for them as they're in the midst of committing these terrible abominations at the cross. We see God's perfect hatred towards sin, but we also see his perfect love towards sinners. At the cross, we see humanity at their worst crucifying their creator. But at the same time, we see divinity at its best embracing a world and praying for a world that did not want him. And so, my friends, what is the glory of the cross? What enables us to, to stand or, or to remain on that wall? It's this, remember, the glory is what glues us together. Do you remember that? It's the glory that makes us one, that enables us to work and continue to build the wall. And friends, here's the glory demonstrated at the cross. And it's basically two things, friends, two things. Number one, it is uncompromising faith in the word of God. And number two, unconditional love for the children of God. Do you see that perfect balance? The thoughts and feelings of God, the glory uncompromising faith in God's word, a, a faith that stands at the same time an unconditional love that appeals, that pleads, that loves. Herein lies our power to remain faithful, the power to remain unmovable on the wall and to finish the work. And so we close with my last verse. Galatians 6, verse 4. No wonder why the Bible says, God forbid, let's read this together, that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The glory of the cross is that the world is dead to us, and we are dead to the world. The true glory that glues us together. Interesting. At the cross, we see perfect unity and perfect separation. We see that Christ was perfectly separated from his Father so that we can be perfectly united back to God. And at the same time, we see Christ was perfectly united to our sins that we might be perfectly separated from our sins. The glory of the cross. How many of you tonight are thankful for the Lord Jesus. How many of you are grateful that he did not come down from the cross? It wasn't nails that held him there. It was love and faith. While he was on the cross, you were on his mind. He said, I will stay on, not going to come down. I'm doing a great work. How many of you want to say as we close tonight, Lord, thank you for not coming down. Now help me to cling to the old rugged cross. Help me in my own personal ministry and mission. Help me to, to have the glory, the character, and the faith to remain crucified on that cross, that self may die so that Jesus can live. You want to say, like Nehemiah, and like what Jesus said, I'm not coming down. I'm going to remain. Because Jesus remained for me, I'll remain for him. Is that your prayer, friends? Is that your desire? If so, I'd like you to stand with me.
And why don't we pray that this desire will become a reality in our experience? I don't know how you came here tonight. Maybe this evening you're going through your own Gethsemane experience where, the, where life seems to be so overwhelming that you feel like giving up. Your own sins and the guilt and the shame that it brings is so unbearable that you feel like God is so far away that He's turned His back on you that He could never love or forgive you. Oh, friends, don't believe that lie. What we've seen tonight testifies to the reality that in our, in our darkest moment, that's when the light is shining the brightest. When we feel God the farthest, that's when He really is the nearest. And so tonight, I want to invite you in your heart of hearts to accept the reality of that promise and claim God as your God, my God, my God. I'm going to believe anyway. I'm going to move forward anyway. Despite how I feel, I'm going to, I'm going to go forward. Let you finish the work you've begun in my life. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the time we've spent together in your presence, in your word. Lord, we've heard a very strong and encouraging message. A message pointing to the reality that prophecy is being fulfilled. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you please have mercy upon us for coming down off the wall of truth so easily, for the times that we've compromised, for the times that we've neglected our duties. Lord, we live in a world that is so distracting. Our hearts are so prone to wander, so prone to leave the God we claim to love. We live in a busy world, Lord, and sometimes we get distracted. Please forgive us. Help us to be like Nehemiah, focused on the mission, not concerned with personal comfort, but for the glory of God. Lord, we want that glory that believes and has uncompromising faith and that glory that has unconditional love. Give to us that experience. And Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Christian world today. Lord, we know that many of your people are in, are in the churches that the Bible describes as Babylon. We know, Lord, that you have sheep that are not of this fold, that your people are in every single church, individuals that love you and are living up to all the light they know. And we thank you for that. But Lord, as we see individuals being swept into this ecumenical apostasy. We pray, Lord, that you'd please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We pray, Lord, that the light of truth will penetrate their hearts. Lord, we want to make ourselves available to be the messengers and the carriers of that light. Teach us, Lord, how to be tactful. Teach us how to be bold. Teach us how to be like Jesus. That's our desire. Lord, Thank you for clinging 
to that old rugged cross, finishing the work. And Lord, may self remain on that cross as well, that we would glory only in that cross. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.